I'm gonna give you 10 minutes to get your hands off my dick. God comes to visit me every once in a while. Actually, he comes more often than I'd like. It's the most wonderful time of the year. With the kids jingle Hello everyone and welcome to this special edition of Inside Oz, the world's only Oz Review Podcast. It's Outside Oz number two, a special bonus episode which I've decided to treat you all, the loyal listeners, to before this festive Christmas day, on this festive Christmas day, or just after this festive Christmas day. Delete as appropriate. This is something that I've had in mind for a little while, and there's been a little bit of a gap since the last episode, which was the watch-along of Cool Runnings from Outside Oz number one. I figured this would be a nice way to bridge the gap before series two of Inside Oz launches in the new year. I had hoped to get the next series launched by the end of 2018, but unfortunately life has got in the way a little bit, but I can tell you that the show will be back in early 2019. Of course, you can follow updates on the show over on social media on both Instagram and Twitter by following the handle at InsideOzPodcast. Having said all that, you may recall when I was introducing J.K. Simmons on the show that I had something in mind to take a look at his biggest achievement, as I put it. So today, we're going to be looking at... That's right, 2014's Whiplash, not to be confused with the 1948 film of the same name about an artist who becomes a New York City prize-fighting boxer. Starring J.K. Simmons alongside Miles Teller, it was written and directed by Damien Chazelle, produced by Jason Reitman for Bold Films, Bloomhouse Productions and Right of Way Films, and it was distributed by Sony's Pictures Classics. Shot in only 19 days and on a budget of $3.3 million and based on Damien Chazelle's own experiences from when he played in his high school band, It was shot, edited, and submitted to the 2014 edition of the Sundance Film Festival in only 10 weeks, before opening to a limited release in North America on the 10th of October 2014, and across the rest of the world from January to April the following year. The film was director Damien Chazelle's first feature film, but he had also previously directed the short film Guy and Madeline on a Park Bench, and he'd also earned writing credits on The Last Exorcism Part 2 and Grand Piano, both in 2013, in which he also wrote and filmed the short film version of Whiplash. So ladies and gentlemen, it's time to strike up the band, and a one, a two, a one, two, three, four. So how's it going with the studio band? Good. Yeah, I think he likes me more now. I push people beyond what's expected of them. I believe that is an absolute necessity. I want to be one of the greats. And because I'm doing that, it's going to take up more of my time. And this is why I don't think that we should be together. I would never let him put my son through hell. Why would you let him get away with what he did to you? There are no two words in the English language more harmful than good job. Kick off and we have the snare liftoff from Andrew Neiman, played by Miles Teller. Born in Downington, Pennsylvania on February 20th, 1987, Miles studied at New York University's Tisch School of the Arts, and after appearing in a number of short films, made his feature debut in 2010's Rabbit Holes. He rose to prominence in 2013's coming-of-age drama The Spectacular Now, playing the part of Sutter Keeley alongside Brie Larson and Shailene Woodley before appearing here in Whiplash the following year. 
Barstella had been playing drums since he was 15 years old, yet due to the unconventional style associated with jazz drumming, he took additional lessons three times a week for four hours at a time, and he would often get blisters on his hand, which plays into the movie later on. So this is referred to as a snare liftoff as it builds and builds until it reaches a crescendo. As he continues to practice, he realises that he's been watched, and we meet J.K. Simmons' character, Terence Fletcher. Of course, I've already introduced J.K. to a certain degree on our regular timeline, and I will talk more about his post-Oz career when we get to it there too, so I'll just be talking about J.K.'s role in this film today. Fletcher is dressed head to toe in black and lurking in the shadows watching Andrew play. Andrew apologises to him, almost like he's been caught doing something that he shouldn't be doing, but Fletcher tells him to stay before asking him a number of questions, including if Andrew knows who Fletcher is, and that he must know that he's looking for players for his band. So straight away there is an aura to Fletcher, compounded by Andrew being aware of his reputation, and we get a feeling that Fletcher is somewhat of a legend at the school. What's your name? Andrew Naiman, sir. What year are you? I'm a first year. You know who I am? Yes, sir. So you know I'm looking for players? Yes, sir. Then why did you stop playing? Did I ask you to start playing again? Uh, sorry, I asked I why you stopped playing, and your version of an answer was to turn into a wind-up monkey. Sorry, I thought... Show me your rudiments. Yes, sir. Double-time swing. No, double-time. Double it. Faster. Faster! Daisy, forgot my jacket. From the off, and we've seen this from JK on Oz, and it's what he does so well in most things that he's in, he instantly establishes a presence to his character, and that is backed up by Miles Teller as Andrew, who knows who Fletcher is and that his reputation precedes him. I already want to know so much more about Fletcher, and we're not even five minutes into the film. So the school setting is that of the Schaefer Conservatory of Music, which isn't a real school, but it's portrayed as being an elite-level art school. So its closest real-world counterpart would probably be the Juilliard School of Performing Arts in Manhattan, which is part of the Lincoln Center of the Performing Arts, which is referenced numerous times throughout the film. You only need to take a look at some of Juilliard's notable alumni to see some of the names which have come out of that school. It's quite an impressive list. We see Andrew leave the school and make his way through some lovely establishing shots of New York at night, but these are actually shot in Los Angeles, and it's all set to this beautiful overture written by Justin Hurwitz, who has been Damien Chazelle's longtime collaborator since the pair met at Harvard. Most of the music in the film was written by Hurwitz, but there are a few staples of the jazz genre written by Duke Ellington and Stan Getz on the soundtrack too. Andrew heads to the movies to see a night screening of 1955's Rafifi, and he has a somewhat awkward exchange buying popcorn from the girl at the counter, played by Melissa Benoist, who he obviously has a crush on. He meets up with his dad, who is played by comedian Paul Reiser. 
Andrew throws some chocolate raisins into the popcorn, which I wouldn't say is a weird combination, but not one that really goes together either, before telling his dad that Fletcher saw him play. Dad asks him how it went, and he asks it in a very enthusiastic, genuine way, almost like Andrew has been talking about wanting to perform for Fletcher for some time. Andrew gives him the old, meh, bit average gesture, and his dad tells him that Andrew still has other options. We see Andrew arrive back at his flat, ignoring a party with loud music, before we cut to the next day, and the rest of the school band is arriving and warming up. We're introduced to Andrew's rival player, Ryan Connolly, played by Austin Stowell. Another member of the band shakes Ryan's hand and says to him that things were hurting with Neiman on the kit, which annoyed me no end. You know, you have a go and see how well you do, trumpet boy. And he does it right in earshot, too. Andrew is Ryan's alternate, and to be fair, Ryan does actually stick up for Andrew somewhat, and he even tells Andrew to ignore the other guy, so he gets some good will points there. The band goes through a number of warm-ups, and they notice that there is a shadowy figure watching them through the window at the door, but it disappears and they all look disappointed. So we see that everybody in this band wants to impress Fletcher, just in the hope that he decides that he wants them in his band. It really puts him over so strongly, and another point about the presence that the man has. He isn't even in the room, and everybody has taken notice of him. He commands so much respect from everyone. Andrew heads down to another practice room, where he sees Fletcher's band rehearsing. He catches sight of Fletcher, who is looking right back at Andrew, who immediately hides around the other side of the door, before heading off to put in some hardcore practice. He's pounding away on his drum kit, looking over at a picture of Buddy Rich, who is referenced a number of times throughout the film, and is somewhat of a hero to Andrew. He puts on a CD of Buddy Rich's Birdland album, which was actually released after the film in 2015, but what we hear is actually from Buddy Rich's 1968 album, Buddy Rich, Mercy Mercy. Cut to another day of practice, and this time Andrew is playing the drums, but is switched out for Ryan and the other core players. Ryan even asks him, what have you been practicing? Picking up on Andrew not being able to play the parts properly. But it is at this point that Fletcher makes his grand entrance into the room, flinging the doors wide open and everybody goes silent. It's like God has entered the room. Fletcher looks over the music and then asks a number of the students to play individual parts. And this is where we start to get our first real bit of humour in the film. You've got certain students being given nanoseconds to play and others who are messing up the whole thing before they even get the chance to. Like the kid who knocks over his sheet music and it hits the ground and Fletcher moves on to the next person. It's funny, yet completely brutal at the same time. He asks the girl who holds first chair if she got there just because she's cute. And lo and behold, he gives her three notes before deciding that that's the very reason why she's there. Drums are up next and Fletcher wants to hear some double time swing, much like he did when he first met Andrew at the start of the film. Ryan goes first, followed by Andrew, and neither man really gets the chance to get anything going. They switch back so that Ryan is in the chair and Fletcher tells them, drums come with me. Ryan starts to leave, before Fletcher says that it's Andrew that he wants to come with him. And he's told to be in room B16 the next morning at 6am and to not be late. Andrew heads back to his chair and smiles to himself as Ryan plays the drums with a face like a smacked ass. So this scene throws up an interesting question, that being how long has Fletcher been watching Andrew? We saw earlier that he hangs around listening to the band, and by having their double-time swing moment at the start, Fletcher was giving Andrew somewhat of a heads-up on what to be practising. With somewhat of a spring in his step, Andrew heads back to the cinema to rather awkwardly ask out the girl at the snack stand. Hey. How are you? I'm good. How are you? How are you? I'm good, thanks. Good. Uh, the usual? Uh, what nah. Do you... Look, I don't really know how... I see you in here a lot, and I think that you're really pretty, and would you want to go out with me? Ever? 
Please go away. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm just messing with you. I'm messing with you. Oh my God. So next morning, Andrew wakes up and looks at his clock, and holy fuck, it's 6.03, which means that he's fucked up royally. He jumps out of bed and legs it to school, even falling down some stairs flat on his face, and he makes it into the practice room, which is completely empty. He looks around confused, thinking that he can't have possibly missed the practice, and he then looks on the notice board to see that the practice actually starts at 9am, not 6am like he was told. So Fletcher is also somewhat of a prankster, it would seem, or, as is more likely, he wanted Andrew to be prepared, and this was something of a test, which he obviously failed. Andrew waits until 9am for the rest of the band to turn up, and these three scenes of Andrew practising with the band and talking with Fletcher are what made up the original short film from which the feature was adapted. Damien Chazelle struggled to get the film off the ground due to finding it hard to get the film funded. It even appeared on a 2012 version of the Hollywood Blacklist, which is a list of the most late unmade scripts, and instead reworked it into a short to shop around to various studios and on the festival circuit. After the short won the short film US Fiction Jury Award at Sundance in 2013, Chazelle was able to get the feature funded. While J.K. Simmons also appears in the short, Miles Teller was unavailable, but he was wanted by Chazelle to play the part of Andrew. The role in the short is played by Johnny Simmons, no relation to J.K. When it came time to cast for the feature version, Teller was cast due to his increased star power after appearing in The Spectacular Now. Prior to Teller taking the role, it had been offered to Dane DeHaan, who had previously appeared in Devil's Knot, The Amazing Spider-Man 2, and Metallica's failed 3D concert movie, Through the Nether. Devil's Knot, by the way, is a good movie, but you should really check out the documentaries on which it is based, Paradise Lost 1 and 2. It's about a trio of boys, dubbed the West Memphis Three, who were jailed for murdering three younger boys, but on the pretty flimsy evidence of them being heavy metal fans. It's well worth your time checking those out. Also worth mentioning is that you can find the full short film on the Blu-ray version of Whiplash. So the rest of the band comes in and starts to unpack their instruments, and we also meet Carl, played by Nate Lang, who was quite an accomplished drummer in real life, and in fact trained Miles Teller and Austin Stowell for their roles in the film. He gives Andrew the cold shoulder, as most people do to their alternates, and gets Andrew to tune the drums. The rest of the band tune up together as one of them shouts Milk the Cunt, which I always found to be a really awkward line. It comes from bands using a middle C to tune to, but it just comes across as a poor excuse to get the C word into the script. Fletcher enters the room at 9am on the dot and everybody stands to attention like their drill sergeants just walked in. He introduces Andrew to the rest of the band, referring to him as a squeaker. 
and the band preps to play the song Whiplash, and we see the sheet music for the drum parts. I can read pretty basic sheet music and have played guitar for a long time, but these charts look absolutely terrifying. I'm sure they're not, it's just that if you're not a drummer, it makes little sense. Fletcher holds his hand up to conduct the band, and he makes them wait before we go into Whiplash. And it's here where I just want to say how great this soundtrack is. I'm a metal guy at heart, but I've always respected jazz, and I can listen to this soundtrack any day of the week, no problem. It's so accessible. We don't get too far into the song before Fletcher calls out one of the players for playing a little incorrect, shall we say? And he moves the band onto another part. However, Fletcher notices that he has somebody who is playing out of tune. I've listened to it so many times and can't make anything out as to somebody being out of tune, and I imagine this is just lifted from the recording rather than the band playing live. But it also adds another characteristic to Fletcher in the process. He is such a perfectionist and his ear is so precise, he's able to spot the smallest of things being wrong in amongst a full band. Now this one really upsets me. We have an out-of-tune player here. Before I continue, would that player care to identify himself? No? Okay, maybe a bug flew in my ear. 115. Five, six, and. No? My ears are fine. We definitely have an out-of-tune player. Whoever it is, this is your last chance. And there it went. Now, either you are deliberately playing out of tune and sabotaging my band, or you don't know you're out of tune, which I'm afraid is even worse. Reads. Five, six, and. Bones. Five, six, and. He's here. Tell me it's not you, Elmer Fudd. your fat ass for too long, Mets. I'm not going to have you cost us a competition because your mind's on a fucking happy meal instead of on pitch. Jackson, congratulations. You're fourth chair. Mets, why are you still sitting there? Get the fuck out!
For the record, Metz wasn't out of tune. You were, Erickson. But he didn't know, and that's bad enough. All right, take 10. When we get back, the squeaker's on. So Fletcher kicks Metz out of the band in a scene very reminiscent of Full Metal Jacket, drawing parallels to the Drill Sergeant comparison earlier. Metz here is played by CJ Vanner, who also plays the same role in the short. While it seems a little harsh to kick Metz out of the band completely, it sets in motion the relationship for Fletcher and Andrew for the rest of the film. And while some may see Fletcher as being somewhat of a brutal teacher and a bit of a bastard, he only wants the absolute best for his band and is prepared to push the people in that band to be the best. He calls a break and tells Andrew that he'll be on the drums after it, and I like the little break in his voice that JK does as he dismisses them. It takes the edge off an intense scene by ending on a laugh. We move to what I guess you can call a common room, where Andrew is going over his charts and Fletcher comes over to talk to him, and we get a bit of backstory on Andrew and his parents. Fletcher asks if either of Andrew's parents were musicians, but his dad is a writer and teacher at one of the local high schools, and we find out that Andrew's mum left the family when he was a baby. With no other musicians in the family, Fletcher figures that Andrew must listen to the greats instead, and mentions Buddy Rich, who we've already established as Andrew's drumming hero, and then proceeds to tell a story about Charlie Parker and Joe Jones, about how Parker acquired his bird nickname by Jones throwing a symbol at his head. He reassures Andrew, telling him not to worry about what others think, and makes Andrew say out loud that he is in the band for a reason. Andrew seems a little uncomfortable, he's leaning against the wall and the whole thing is compounded by Fletcher resting his hand on the wall too. So he's kind of boxed Andrew in and this leads to some speculation as to whether or not Fletcher is gay. I've never looked at it that way, but there are underlying themes reminiscent of the relationship between Andrew and Fletcher being that of a BDSM nature, Fletcher being the dominant and Andrew being the submissive, which plays into later scenes as well. This being made in 2014, Fifty Shades of Grey had taken over the world at this point, so the BDSM subculture was a bit more in the public conscience by this time. After their little talk, Andrew seems to have a little more swagger about him and heads back to the practice room with a big smile on his face, and Fletcher asks the band to play Whiplash again, but this time a little under tempo, telling Andrew to do his best and seems all nicey-nicey at this point in time. The band starts playing, and the song doesn't sound anywhere near as good at the slower tempo as it did before in my eyes. You get a feeling that something isn't quite right as we see Andrew play, and if you look at Carl's eyes, he's looking at Andrew and then looking over at Fletcher. He can obviously hear something that isn't quite right and knows that something is coming from Fletcher at some point in time. Fletcher isn't letting on to anything though, and he wants to hear Andrew play some drum fills, and he even says, we got Buddy Rich here, which puts a big smile on Andrew's face. He tries a more elaborate fill, which makes Fletcher stop the band and comment on it. They start again, but now Andrew isn't quite getting it right, and it's very stop-start at this point, as Fletcher tells Andrew that he isn't on my tempo, again reaffirming Fletcher's perfectionist tendencies and his dominant position. We then get a couple of attempts where Andrew is either rushing, i.e. playing too quickly, or dragging, in which he's playing too slow. Again, this shows how sharp Fletcher's hearing is for the music, as to someone who isn't completely absorbed in that style of music, you'd struggle to spot it. After a few attempts, Andrew seems to have got the hang of it as Fletcher isn't stopping him playing. Instead, he walks towards the back of the room towards a set of chairs, and then launches one of them across the room at Andrew, who ducks out of the way just in time, and calls back to just moments ago when the two were talking about Charlie Parker and Joe Jones. We then get the great where you rushing or where you dragging scene, and I'm just going to play the clip as I don't think I can do it justice just talking about it myself. <laughs> 
Why do you suppose I just hurled a chair at your head, Neiman? I, I don't know. Sure you do. The tempo? Were you rushing or were you dragging? I, I don't know. Start counting. Five, six, seven. In four, five. damn it! Look at me! One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Now, was I rushing or was I dragging? Oh, no. Count again. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Rushing or dragging? Rushing. So you do know the difference! If you deliberately sabotage my band, I will fuck you like a pig. Now, are you a rusher or are you a dragger? Or are you going to be on my fucking time? I'm going to be on your time. What does that say? Quarter note equals 215. Count me at 215. 1234123. Jesus one, two, fucking Christ! I didn't know they allowed recharge into Schaefer. Am I to understand that you cannot read tempo? Can you even fucking read music? What is that? Eighth note? Yes, what is that? Dotted 16th note. Sight read measure 101. Are you in a fucking a cappella group? Play the goddamn kit! Now answer my question. Were you rushing or were you dragging? Answer! Rushing. Oh, my dear God. Are you one of those single-tier people? Do I look like a double fucking rainbow to you? You must be upset. Are you upset? No. No, so you just don't give a shit about any of this? I do give so a shit about this. Are you upset? Yes or fucking no? Yes, you are upset. Yeah. Say it. I'm upset. Say it so the whole band can hear you. I'm upset. Louder! I'm upset. Louder! I'm upset! You are a worthless, friendless, faggot-lipped little piece of shit whose mommy left daddy when she figured out he wasn't Eugene O'Neill and who is now weeping and slobbering all over my drum set like a fucking nine-year-old girl. So for the final father-fucking time, say it louder! I'm upset! Carl. Start practicing harder, Neiman. Whiplash, bar 125. Big boy tempo. Five, six, eight. So Fletcher absolutely obliterating Andrew there. And I loved how Fletcher worked in a couple of insults towards Andrew's parents in the process, using the newfound info that he'd just acquired. I also really liked how when he's making Andrew say to the rest of the band that he's upset, the rest of them are all looking rather sheepish. You just know that this has happened to all of them at some point in time during their time in the band. Speaking of double rainbows too, I saw one of those recently while I was at work on an early morning shift, but I can't say that I was moved to a single tier. It was pretty cool though. Andrew heads back home and kind of shuts himself away from everybody for a while. You see that he ignores an incoming phone call from his dad for quite some time, and all that he has around him are his drumsticks and some more Buddy Rich items, and soon enough he's relentlessly practicing his parts. And we see that he's developing blisters on his hands from practicing so much. So it's like the humiliation that he felt from Fletcher has really lit a fire under Andrew to succeed. And he just simply pops a plaster over his blister, or even multiple plasters in some cases, and is straight back to playing. The score in this scene as well is very reminiscent of that by Bernard Herrmann in Taxi Driver, with its droning brass section playing under what we're seeing. Cut to Andrew and Nicole's date at the pizza place, and Andrew is talking about how he likes the music that they play there, which is jazz from the 30s. Of course it is, what else would it be? 
And he even points out specifics about the song that is playing. And you just think, come on, Andrew, have the night off. You're on this date with a very beautiful woman. The only one that you seem to interact with at any point, And all you can do is talk about the music. They have an awkward conversation about their perceived negatives and their family's lack of support. Andrew finally manages to ask some questions about Nicole and what she wants to be and what she does. So he does manage to pull it back around, so well done there. He then undoes all of that completely by seemingly undermining the school that she goes to and they share an awkward silence that seems to last an ice age. They go back to talking about how they struggle to get along with people and I was really rooting for both of them. The pair of them are incredibly socially awkward, but they make a cute couple. Cut to the Overbrook Jazz Competition, and we see that the band are all suited and booted and getting ready to head out onto the stage. Andrew is Carl's alternate, so he made it through the practices, although the number of chairs launched at him wasn't disclosed. Andrew overhears Fletcher talking to someone out in the corridor, and he takes a peek outside. And we see that Fletcher is talking to an old friend who is with his daughter. And Fletcher seems to be a completely different person here. He's great with the kid, and he's hugging the man. They're like a pair of old war buddies who haven't seen each other in years. It's a stark contrast to what we've seen so far, and adds more mystery to Fletcher at the same time. Fletcher heads into the dressing room and shouts, Listen up, cocksuckers, so he can switch it on and off like a light. It's great stuff. He tells Carl to tune the drum kit properly, and then goes over the plan with the band and mentions about how the Lincoln Center use these competitions to determine who they're interested in. So there is a lot riding on the success of the band here, and Fletcher even mentioned about how he isn't going to allow his reputation with that department to be tarnished, which again adds just that little bit more to his character. Not only is he massively respected at his own school, his reputation spreads out across the city at highly respected organisations. He holds up one of the music folders and says that if he ever sees one of them lying around again, he will stop being so polite. You expect another quotable one-liner there to come, but then it doesn't, and it somehow makes it even funnier. It's great writing. A stagehand comes over to tell Fletcher something, but Fletcher is so in the zone he just tells him to get lost before he demolishes him. So the band head out onto the stage for their first set, and they're playing a song called Too Hip to Retire. Although Fletcher refers to it as Irene beforehand, so I'm not really sure what happened there. As they're playing, Fletcher heads in towards Carl on the drums, and he gives him an almighty death stare. I'm guessing he didn't do a great job of tuning the kit. Even I was scared at that point, so I don't want to imagine how Carl was feeling. The set finishes and Carl hands a folder to Andrew and tells him to hang on to it for the second set. Andrew drops the folder onto a chair and heads over to grab a drink from the vending machine, but gets distracted by someone talking down the corridor. Carl returns, asking to look at the music in the folder, but the folder has now disappeared. Carl starts to freak out and demands that Andrew find the folder. We hear a very distant shout of Carl's surname, no prizes for guessing which character is shouting for him. However, the voice is actually that of director Damien Chazelle. The pair head back to the dressing room to meet with Fletcher. Carl tells him that he gave Andrew the folder and that Andrew had lost it. But Fletcher tells him that the folder is Carl's responsibility and asks why he gave it to Andrew. It's a good moment which is open to your own interpretation, but I like to think that this is Fletcher sticking up for Andrew to a degree and not allowing Carl to bullshit his way out of things by throwing Andrew under the bus. He tells Carl to grab his sticks and get on stage, but Carl drops the bombshell that he can't play without the sheet music because he doesn't know them by heart which, as you can imagine, goes down tremendously well with Fletcher. Andrew jumps in and says that he knows the song, which we found out is Whiplash again. Fletcher tells him that he better play it better than he did in rehearsal last month, and we get the second set from the band, this time playing Whiplash at what Fletcher calls Big Boy Tempo. While Fletcher is conducting the band as a whole, his focus is purely on Andrew at the start. 
He seems happy enough with Andrew's playing, and we see that the band actually wins the competition. So that's a great accomplishment for Andrew to get to where he is in such a short space of time. Back in the rehearsal room, and one student is telling Andrew not to touch his folder, and Carl tells him not to touch the drum kit. So even after Andrew saved the day, essentially, by stepping in to play the drum parts, he's still an outsider to the rest of the group. Fletcher arrives and tells Carl that it's core only, and that he doesn't have time for alternates. So Andrew has usurped Carl and is now the core drummer for the band. And he looks as surprised as anyone. Clearly he's finding out the same way as everyone else is. Having said that, he does crack a smile when Carl is told to turn his pages. We get a quick shot of Andrew riding the bus watching a Buddy Rich video on his phone, and he receives a text message from Nicole, who it looks like he hasn't seen for a while, and he also has an unplayed voice message. Again, more evidence that Andrew struggles with forming relationships and is somewhat isolated from everyone. He should be in those great early days of a new romantic relationship, but instead he's focused on his playing and is somewhat neglecting Nicole and others around him. Andrew goes to visit with his dad, and his dad asks how things are going with the band. Andrew tells him that he thinks Fletcher is starting to like him more, and Dad makes a point about how Fletcher's opinion means a lot to Andrew. We get a scene at the dinner table with Andrew, his father, and some other relatives. He tells them the good news about how he's the new core drummer for the band, but he's quickly overshadowed by the arrival of his cousin Travis, who has just been made the MVP of the football team, and his other cousin Dustin, who is heading up the Model UN, and even his own father has been named Teacher of the Year. They throw a couple of little barbs Andrew's way about how music is subjective, and his uncle also seems quite condescending when asking about the future prospects of being in the band. So this is just yet more evidence that Andrew is somewhat of an outsider and isolated, even from his own family. Even though he has built up a small list of accomplishments, he is belittled by the rest of his family, who seem more focused on others. And he even calls out one of his cousins who is bragging about scoring a 93-yard touchdown. And Andrew tells him, yeah, but it's Division 3. So while it might sound impressive, the actual level of competition is somewhat questionable. Andrew's uncle starts asking about whether or not Andrew has any friends. Got any friends, Andy? No. Well, why's that? I don't know. I just never really saw the use. Oh, well, you can play with otherwise. Lennon and McCartney, they were school buddies, am I right? Charlie Parker didn't know anybody until Joe Jones threw a symbol at his head. So that's your idea of success, huh? I think being the greatest musician of the 20th century is anybody's idea of success. Dying broke and drunk and full of heroin at the age of 34 is not exactly my idea of success. I'd rather die drunk, broke at 34 and have people at a dinner table talk about me than live to be rich and sober at 90 and nobody remember who I was. Ah, but your friends will remember you. That's the point. None of us were friends with Charlie Parker. That's the point. Travis and Dustin, they have plenty of friends and plenty of purpose. I'm sure they'll make great school board presidents someday. Oh, that's what this is all about? You think you're better than us? Catch on quick, you model you in? I got a reply for you, Andrew. You think Carlton football is a joke? Come play with us. Four words you will never hear from the NFL. Who wants dessert? And from Lincoln Center? So Andrew gets brought back down to earth by his dad quite a bit there. Even if it was a little bit of a dick move, you see that Andrew is fighting the battle on his own. Maybe his dad could have done something to elevate Andrew in the conversation rather than joining in with the others. His uncle also has a line about how John Lennon and Paul McCartney were school friends, which I don't think is true. I'm sure they didn't meet each other until Lennon was 16 and had formed the Quarrymen. But that's another story for another day and probably another podcast altogether. Any Beatles fans listening, please get in touch. Cut to another scene of the band practicing, and Andrew seems to have found his groove now that he's been made the core drummer, and even Fletcher seems to have lightened up a little bit. 
The band is dismissed until a practice later that night when they have to have learned a new song. But Fletcher tells Andrew to stay behind, and he then drops the bombshell that he's invited Ryan to try out for the band. And he's even had the whole day to practice the new song. Austin Stowell, who plays Ryan, unlike Miles Teller and Nate Lang, had no drumming experience when he was cast, and only had a month to prepare, in which he managed to learn to play three songs, or at the very least make it look like he'd learned to play, and I think he does a pretty decent job. Around 40% of the drumming that you hear in the film was performed by Miles Teller himself. Some takes he is playing live and others he's playing along to pre-recorded tracks. There are moments where what you hear from the drums and what you see from Andrew doesn't quite match up. But that is partly down to the actual drum patterns being difficult to replicate simply by miming along to them. Fletcher drops into the conversation that Andrew has been made temporary core drummer, which obviously doesn't sit well with Andrew, but he just about manages to hold his frustration in. Fletcher says that he wants to give both of them a shot for another upcoming competition. Andrew sits at the kit to have a practice of the piece, but doesn't quite get the tempo, and is told to let Ryan have a try, but Andrew is reluctant to give up the seat. He eventually does, and Ryan then plays the piece perfectly, according to Fletcher, although to me it sounded a little ropey. Fletcher says that you never know what might happen, as you can walk in as an alternate, who knows when you could be the new core. And Andrew flips out, he can't believe that he's seemingly been replaced already, even though it's mirroring exactly what happened when he joined the band. Before Fletcher can respond, he gets a phone call and leaves the room, but not before giving Andrew a long, hard stare. Ryan tells Andrew not to worry about Fletcher, but Andrew heads into Fletcher's office to confront him. Fletcher seems to have his mind elsewhere and tells Andrew that now is not the time. Andrew continues to plead his case, but Fletcher screams at him, not now, and that if he wants the part, he has to earn it. And with that, Andrew grabs his things and leaves and we cut to another scene of him with Nicole. He lays it out there that he thinks they shouldn't be together anymore as he is prepared to keep pursuing what he is after and that it's going to take up more of his time and that he can't spend his spare time with her. And even though when he is with her he'll be thinking about drumming and that she'll likely end up resenting him and maybe even tell him to ease up on the drumming and he'll thereby end up resenting her. It's a fucking brutal scene in which Andrew comes off as a massive prick and it all plays out to Nicole's sad face as she doesn't seem to have a say in any of it. And that is the last that we see of Nicole as Andrew does exactly what he said he would do and heads back to his flat to practice. Andrew is going hell-bent for leather with his practicing and gets into it so much that when he makes a mistake he ends up putting his fist through one of his drums, cutting his hand in the process. But he continues to practice and is screaming expletives as he plays, no doubt aiming them at Fletcher. We go back to the late night practice and Fletcher comes in and after half-heartedly introducing Ryan, he tells the band about how he's received some bad news. You know it's serious when he's telling the band to put down their instruments, and he heads over and pops a CD into the player. Six years ago, came across a kid in a practice room working on his scales. He was early second year, and he'd started at Schaefer with a lot of hope. Like all you guys. But the truth was, uh, he barely squeaked in to begin with, and uh, he was really struggling. And the faculty were all telling him, maybe this isn't for you. But they didn't see what I saw. This scared, skinny kid, cursing himself because he couldn't get his scales right. I saw a drive in him, and I put him in studio band. And when he graduated, 
Marsalis made him third trumpet at Lincoln Center. A year later, he was first. And that's who you're listening to now. His name was Sean Casey. <clears throat> I found out this morning that Sean died yesterday in a car accident. And uh, I just I wanted you guys to know he was a beautiful player. I just thought you should know. So as is customary, it's down to me to say how amazing I thought JK was in this little segment. It's the first time that we have seen Fletcher really open up, and he even tears up when talking about the previous student, Sean. And it really humanises Fletcher, and even saying sorry for the little bit of crying that he does, it's not showing weakness, it's showing that he is normal, if anything. It also shows us that the relationship that he has with Andrew is something that seems to have happened before and is now repeating itself. Whether it was just this one time previous or not remains to be seen. Having got that out of his system, Fletcher is straight back into work mode and the band is off practicing again. Normal service is resumed as he quickly stops Ryan on the drums and replaces him with Andrew to try and earn the part. Fletcher isn't happy with Andrew's playing either, so Carl gets brought back into the fall to try and get his spot back. But he doesn't get it either, and Fletcher says that they will stay there all night until one of them gets it right. The rest of the band is dismissed so that Fletcher can focus on the drummers. We then get somewhat of a merry-go-round as all three of them get multiple chances on the kit and are pushed to their absolute limit, all while Fletcher throws insult after insult after personal attack at them. Ryan starts to suffer hand cramps and Carl and Andrew's hands are bleeding from the relentless playing. Andrew gets another chance in the chair and he finally seems to have cracked it, but Fletcher makes him play faster and faster. And it's in this moment here that I thought Andrew could be one hell of a black metal drummer. He is essentially playing blast beats at this point. Fletcher stops Andrew playing, telling him that he earned the part, and in a final insult to the alternates, tells them to clean the blood from the drum kit. He calls the rest of the band back into the room as we see that the clock is approaching 2 o'clock in the morning, meaning that that little drum-off lasted for close to 5 hours, and it's at this point that you start to question Fletcher's motives a little bit. Is he just a drill sergeant-style knobhead who pushes people too far? Is he a dominant who has crossed over into the abusive? Or is he just so determined to get the absolute best out of people that he will push them beyond acceptable boundaries? We're left asking how much is too much. Quick scene of the band leaving for the night and Fletcher telling them where to be for the competition the next day, and he even stipulates to them to be there two hours beforehand. Andrew walks away looking like a beat-up boxer, which conveniently enough Miles Teller would do in a subsequent role. The day of the competition arrives and Andrew is riding on the bus going over his charts when the bus breaks down with a flat tyre, so he has to hop onto another bus and then ends up having to run to a car rental to get to the competition. He is running late due to all of this, so he calls ahead to say that he will be there soon. He's already two minutes late at this point and nearly ten minutes away, when he is told that Ryan is warming up to take his place on stage. 
Andrew finally arrives at the competition, where he and Fletcher exchange words. Hey. Hey, sorry I'm late. Well, glad you could fit us into your busy schedule, darling. I know. Look, I'm sorry I'm late, but I'm here. Ready to go. Connelly's playing the part. Yeah, like fucking hell he's playing my part. What the fuck did you just say to me? It's my part. It's my part, and I decide who to lend it to. Usually it's somebody that has fucking sticks. I left him in the car. I'll be right back. Take me five minutes. I'm warming up the band now. Look, I can use Ryan's sticks. Neiman, you lost the fucking part. No, I didn't. Look, you can't fucking do this to me. Can't? Yeah. When did you become a fucking expert on what I can or cannot do, you fucking weepy willow shit sack? I earned that part. You never earned anything. God, you are a self-righteous prick. The only reason you're a fucking core is because you misplaced a folder. The only reason you're in studio band to begin with is because I told you exactly what I'd be asking for in Nassau. Am I wrong? Yeah, no, I'm in studio band because I'm the hey, best player. Hey, why don't you just back off, Yeah, fuck off, Johnny Utah. Turn my pages, bitch. Hey, I can cut you any fucking time I want. You would have cut me by now. Try me, you fucking weasel. At 5.30, that's in exactly 11 minutes, my band is on stage. If your ass is not on that stool with your own fucking sticks in hand, or if you make one fucking mistake, one, I will drum your ass back to Nassau where you can turn pages until you graduate or fucking drop out. By the time you're done at Schaefer, you're going to make Daddy look like a fucking success story. Got it? Or we can let Johnny Utah play the part. You choose. That's my part. I'll be on your stage. You got 10 minutes, you fucking pathetic pansy-ass fruit fuck! So with the clock ticking, Andrew heads back to the car rental to pick up his drumsticks and then heads back to the competition again, all while trying to cram in 18 minutes worth of car travel into 11. He calls ahead to get someone to tell Fletcher that he is on his way, making up a story about getting locked in the car, before Andrew is hit by an oncoming truck on the driver's side, flipping the car over onto its roof. Ironically, Damien Chazelle was involved in a car accident partway through filming. Battered and bloodied, Andrew flees the scene of the accident and tries to make it to the competition on foot, which he does just as the band is taking their seats on stage. Fletcher takes a look at Andrew, and it looks for a second like he's about to say something and give Andrew some time to get himself together, but instead the band starts to play. Unsurprisingly, for somebody who minutes earlier had been involved in a road traffic collision, Andrew is struggling to play his drums. He keeps dropping his sticks and failing to keep time and eventually stops playing altogether before Fletcher calls for the band to halt. He tells Andrew that he is done in the band before turning and apologising to the judging panel as Andrew rises from his stool, kicks his bass drum out of the way and tackles Fletcher to the ground. When filming this tackle, there was no stunt double used and JK suffered two broken ribs as a result of the tackle. Makes me think that Miles Teller should consider a career in rugby league if his acting work ever dries up. The two are quickly separated and Andrew's pulled off screaming fuck you at Fletcher as we focus on Andrew's blood-soaked symbols to close the scene. Cut to Andrew and his dad meeting with Rachel Bornhold, who is conducting an investigation into Fletcher. She asks Andrew if the name Sean Casey means anything to him, who of course was the student that Fletcher had mentioned to have died earlier. She however says that Sean committed suicide, which contradicts what Fletcher said earlier about Sean having died in a car crash. She claims that Sean suffered from depression and anxiety, which started when Fletcher became his teacher, and that the family are looking to have Fletcher fired rather than looking for any financial gain. The scene intercuts with a scene of Andrew in his flat, where he's received a letter saying that he's been dismissed from school, presumably for his attack on Fletcher, and watching home movies of himself playing the drums. He says that Fletcher didn't do anything before his dad tries to talk Andrew into giving evidence against Fletcher, 
as Rachel asks similar questions, including whether or not Fletcher intentionally inflicted emotional distress. She reassures Andrew that his testimony would be anonymous, as Andrew asks his dad why he would do this, with his dad saying, do you think that I would let him put my son through hell and then just get away scot-free? and says that there is nothing in the world more important to him than Andrew. So contrary to earlier, when Dad was being unsupportive of Andrew at the dinner table, he's at least supporting his son here. He even asks Andrew, don't you know that? Which, considering everything we've seen and talked about with Andrew and his relationship issues and isolation, would suggest that maybe Andrew didn't realise that. We see Andrew pack a bunch of jazz CDs into a black bin bag, take it down his Buddy Rich poster, and pack away his drum kit, seemingly wanting nothing more to do with music before he says to Rachel that he will testify against Fletcher and to tell him what to say. The score that's playing during this too has Andrew's theme changed to a piano part, taking the drums out of it because this is what Andrew has done. It's a subtle thing, but it works really well. So what we got here was a monumental crash, quite literally, from Andrew as he went from being on top to hitting rock bottom very quickly and again illustrated the control, the power, and the dominance that Fletcher had over him. We get a passage of time as we see Andrew working at a deli and then walking down a street. The eagle-eyed amongst you might recognise this is Highland Park in Los Angeles, the same area where Mr. Pink, i.e. Steve Buscemi, is being chased by the police in Reservoir Dogs. We see Andrew and his dad watching another movie together, but this time they're doing it at home, possibly because Andrew is avoiding the possibility of running into Nicole at the theatre and the complications that that may bring. Turns out they're watching this movie at Andrew's new flat, so it must have been student accommodation that he was staying in before. Speaking of Nicole, Andrew pulls out his phone and he still has her number, but decides not to call her. Instead, he takes a walk around the neighbourhood, passing a street performer who's playing drums using plastic tubs and buckets, and he passes Noel's Jazz Club. There's a board outside advertising a special guest appearance by Terence Fletcher. So again, this adds a little bit more mystery to Fletcher's past and how big of a reputation he has. We've seen that he has connections in various musical departments across the city, and for a club to be using his name when advertising an appearance, they must have faith that his name carries some weight, and he must have been something of a name in music before pursuing a career in education. Andrew heads into the club and he sees Fletcher up on stage playing the piano with a house band. I discussed on a previous episode of the podcast about JK's musical background, but JK did have to retake piano lessons for the role, as he hadn't played for a number of years. And you can see the concentration on JK's face when he's playing. Which is good to know that he isn't just miming along to a pre-record, or if he is, he's doing his best to make it look like he is actually playing. The piece that he's playing, simply called Fletcher's Song in Club on the soundtrack, is a rearrangement of Andrew's piano theme from before, and it's a much more mellowed out and stripped back affair, perhaps reflecting a change in his character too at this point in the film. As the song finishes, Fletcher and Andrew lock eyes across the room. Andrew tries to leave, but Fletcher comes over and calls him Andrew for the first time in the film. Every other time he's referred to him as Neiman. They sit down to have a drink together, and Fletcher updates Andrew on what's been happening since they last saw each other. I don't know if you heard, uh, I'm not a Schaefer anymore. Yeah, I, I, I did hear that. Did you quit? Not exactly. Some parents got a kid from Sean Casey's here, I think, to say some things about me. Although why anybody would have anything other than peaches and cream to say about me is a mystery. 
That's a good laugh, right? I'm sorry. No, but no, hey, I'm sorry. I get it. I know I made enemies. I'm conducting a little well. They brought back the JVC Fest this year. They got me opening in a couple of weeks with a pro band. That's great. Yeah, sorry. Truth is, I don't think people understood what it was I was doing at Schaefer. I wasn't there to conduct. Any fucking moron can wave his arms and keep people in tempo. I was there to push people beyond what's expected of them. I believe that is an absolute necessity. Otherwise, we're depriving the world of the next Louis Armstrong, the next Charlie Parker. So Fletcher talks about how someone said things about him to the school board, but he doesn't mention anyone by name. It's open to personal interpretation, but I don't think he is aware that it's Andrew who spoke up about him at this time. We've seen in other scenes that he pushes all sections of the band, not just Andrew on the drums. So it is feasible that anybody could have reported him, and Fletcher even acknowledges that he's made enemies, and how anyone would have, as he puts it, anything other than peaches and cream to say about him is a mystery. He isn't stupid, he knows that his methods may be viewed as unconventional, but he feels justified in his approach. They go over the story of how Charlie Parker got his nickname once again, and there's actually a slight error in this retelling. Fletcher says that Charlie Parker went back to practice the next morning, when, in reality, Charlie Parker himself said that he didn't practice for three months following the incident with Joe Jones. There's also speculation about whether or not Jones did actually throw a symbol at Parker or not. Fletcher then talks about how he thinks the words good job are two of the most harmful in the English language, and he even takes a swipe at Starbucks jazz albums, giving jazz the inverted commas treatment. Like I mentioned earlier, I'm a metal guy, but I know enough about jazz to know the difference between good and bad stuff, and anybody should know that any music you buy at the place you buy your coffee probably isn't the best in terms of quality. Andrew asks him about the line, and that maybe he could discourage the next Charlie Parker from becoming the next Charlie Parker, but Fletcher says that the next Charlie Parker wouldn't have been discouraged, and that the truth is he never truly had the next anyone, but he tried, which is more than most manage, and that for that he will never apologise. I also realise I said Charlie Parker far too many times in succession there. We'll get to the critical reception and fallout of the film in a little bit, but I think this scene here is what did it for J.K., Fletcher is pouring his heart out to Andrew, and we at least get some sort of an explanation as to why Fletcher is the way that he is. All that he ever wanted is for whoever he is teaching to be their absolute best, and isn't prepared to settle for anything less. The pair leave the club, but before they part ways, Fletcher mentions about how the drummer he has for an upcoming show isn't cutting the mustard, and that he is using the music from the studio band for the set list, and that he needs somebody who knows the charts. Andrew asks him, you know, what about Ryan? And Fletcher admits that all Ryan ever was was an incentive to push Andrew. And he also mentions about how Carl maybe got discouraged and switched to pre-med. He never outright asks Andrew if he wants the part, but he tells him that he can take the weekend to think about it. The fact that he doesn't ask Andrew could be because he doesn't want to look like he is desperate, but also that he doesn't want to acknowledge that the dominant, submissive part of their relationship has changed. Whereas Fletcher had been completely dominant before, where he goes from here hangs on Andrew's decision, so the power has shifted somewhat. 
Back in Andrew's flat, we see him opening up his wardrobe and we see that he still has his drum kit after all. I was really happy to see that Andrew had kept hold of his kit and hadn't given up on drumming completely. He also gives Nicole a call and he apologises for everything that happened. It's still all very awkward between the two of them, but that just seems to be the kind of people that they are. Hey, uh, Nicole, it's Andrew. Hi. Hey. It's been a while since I talked to you. Um, look, I, I'm really sorry about everything. I know that's not, you know, enough, but I'm, I'm just really sorry. Um, But anyway, I got, I actually have this show uh, this weekend. It's, it's a, uh, like a JVC thing. And I don't know if maybe you'd want to go and we, you know, maybe get some like pizza afterwards and like complain about our schools again. What is that JV? N- no, it's <laughs> JVC. It's like a, it's a jazz thing. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, well, I don't know if I can come. I, I was going to check with my boyfriend. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'll, I mean, I'll check, but I don't know. I don't really think he's, like, jazz music, so... Yeah, I mean, not for everybody. Mm. Okay, well, I guess uh, maybe I'll, I'll see you guys there. Okay. Okay. Bye. So Andrew takes a moment to reflect on the one that got away before he grabs his sticks and tools. And we see that this JVC concert is being held at Carnegie Hall, one of the most prestigious music venues in the world. Although the film is set in New York, this exterior shot is the only one in the movie filmed there. All other exterior shots were filmed in and around Los Angeles, and the final scene itself was filmed at the Orpheum Theatre in Los Angeles. We see Andrew peeking out at the lobby and he sees his dad walking around. I'm sure Andrew was more likely looking to see if Nicole had decided to come, but he seems happy nonetheless that his dad is there to witness this big moment. Fletcher gives the band a last minute pep talk before they head out on the stage. Alright gang, listen up. Now, for those of you who are new at this, which looks like it might be everybody except Cal, tonight could change your life. The folks out there make a phone call. You could be a Blue Note signee, an EMC client, a Lincoln Center core. On the other hand, if you drop the ball, you might be looking for a new line of work because the other thing about these cats is they never forget. We all set? All right, let's have fun. So once again, we see that this is a different Fletcher from what we saw before when he had his teaching role. And JK plays it almost like Fletcher has realised that he's been given a second chance, and he's grateful for it. The band heads out onto the stage with Andrew passing Fletcher one last time before he takes his seat at the drum kit. Andrew wipes his hands on his trousers as they are sweaty, and it seems that the nerves are starting to kick in a little bit. And it's probably not helped by Fletcher coming over and telling Andrew that he knows that it was Andrew that reported him. 
and to make matters even worse, he changes the opening song from Whiplash to Upswinging, which he says is a piece by Tim Simonek, who works on the music for the film alongside Justin Hurwitz, and has quite an extensive career in film, working in the music department for films such as From Dusk Till Dawn, The Incredibles, Inside Out and Jurassic World, to name just a few. Andrew looks like he's seen a ghost when he hears of this development, and Fletcher turns around as if to say, I've got you now, motherfucker, and he has seized control of the relationship back. Andrew doesn't even have a drum chart for the piece, whereas the rest of the band do, so he tries to improvise as best as he can, and unsurprisingly, it sounds fucking terrible. Andrew gets through it, and the audience gives a ripple of an applause as Fletcher goes over to him and tells him that maybe he doesn't have it after all. Andrew looks out to the uninfused crowd before leaving the stage. His dad runs backstage and gives Andrew a big hug, as we hear Fletcher describe the rhythm section as being a little avant-garde, which is basically code for, well, that was fucking weird, wasn't it? His dad says let's go home, but Andrew returns to the stage, much to the surprise of Fletcher. As Fletcher continues to talk to the crowd, Andrew interrupts him by playing the opening to Caravan, which he knows from his time in studio band, and we get the big finale of the film as the band gradually join in on the song, and Fletcher conducts the rest of the band. Fletcher tries to intimidate Andrew, telling him that he's going to gouge his eyes out, but Andrew has risen now, and he is in his element in his final scene. He's taken this by the scruff of the neck and channeled his inner Charlie Parker, by coming back and playing a stormer. Slowly but surely, both men cooperate, and Andrew even throws in a drum solo, which lasts for around five minutes. As the piece comes to a close after a whopping nine minutes, we see that Andrew has finally earned Fletcher's respect, and he even fixes Andrew's symbol at one point when it comes loose. We get a call back to the snare liftoff from the start of the film, as it finally closes on the pair having an intense stare-down. It focuses on both men's eyes, and you can see that Fletcher has either smiled or said something to Andrew, although we don't find out for sure. The song climaxes, and we cut to black, and the credits roll. So that was 2014's Whiplash, written and directed by Damien Chazelle. I've been looking forward to talking about this pretty much since I had the original idea for the podcast, as I knew I would want to throw in the occasional bonus episode here and there. The first time that I saw this film, I can remember turning to my wife and saying, I want to watch it again, and we watched it again the next day, and I enjoyed it just as much then, and I still love it every time I watch it. It's just absolutely mesmerizing and you get so drawn into the whole thing i cannot recommend this film enough to everyone if you haven't seen the film then i've just gone and spoilt the whole thing for you but it's worth watching the film regardless of that so how did the film perform overall at the box office 
as I mentioned at the start of the show, it was made on a production budget of $3.3 million, which is incredibly cheap in this day and age. The film opened to a limited release, only six theatres in the US on October 10th, 2014, and on its opening weekend made $135,388. Once the film received a wider release, it grossed $13,092,000 in the US, and $35,890,041 overseas, bringing its worldwide total to $48,982,041. Despite its low box office, the film was a hit with critics, and J.K. Simmons in particular received widespread acclaim for his performance as Terence Fletcher. Todd McCarthy of The Hollywood Reporter wrote of Miles Teller and his performance as Andrew Neiman. Teller, who greatly impressed in last year's Sundance entry The Spectacular Now, does so again in a performance that is more often simmering than volatile. Of J.K. Simmons, he wrote, Simmons has the great good fortune for a character actor to have here found a co-lead part he can really run with, which is what he excitingly does with a man who is profane, way out of bounds, and like many a good villain, utterly compelling. Of Damien Chazelle, Amber Wilkinson from the Daily Telegraph wrote, Chazelle's film has a sharp and gripping rhythm, with shots beautifully edited by Tim Cross. The film also performed well at the various awards shows, winning a total of 92 awards. After premiering as a feature at Sundance in 2014, the film won both the Grand Jury Prize and the Audience Award in the US Dramatic category. The film also won three Academy Awards, including Best Achievement in Film Editing and Best Achievement in Sound Mixing, and three BAFTA Awards, once again including awards for editing and sound. However, 52 of the film's 92 award wins were awarded to J.K. Simmons, including the hat-trick of Best Supporting Actor awards at the main awards shows, those being the BAFTA Awards, the Golden Globe Awards, and perhaps most prestigiously, the Academy Awards. And the actor goes to... the Oscar goes to... J.K. Simmons Whiplash. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you to the Academy. Thank you to everyone involved in the making of Whiplash. And I am grateful every day for the most remarkable person I know, my wife, the wonderful Michelle Schumacher. I'm grateful for your love, your kindness, your wisdom, your sacrifice, and your patience which brings me to the above-average children. <laughs> Even though I may try the patience more. Joe and Olivia, you are extraordinary human beings, smart, funny, kind, loving people, and that's because you are a reflection of your mother. <laughs> and if I may, call your mom, everybody, I'm told it's like a billion people or so. Call your mom, call your dad. If you're lucky enough to have a parent or two alive on this planet, call them. 
Don't text, don't email, call them on the phone, tell them you love them and thank them and listen to them for as long as they want to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you, Mom and Dad. Damien Chazelle followed up Whiplash in 2016 with La La Land, which saw Chazelle and J.K. Simmons reunite, with Chazelle mentioning in an interview that he saw J.K. Simmons as a good luck charm. La La Land was another critical success as well as a commercial success for the director. The film won six Academy Awards, including Best Director for Chazelle, a feat which was replicated at the Golden Globes and the BAFTA Awards. The film also won the Best Picture Award at the Golden Globes and BAFTAs, but was incorrectly named as having won the Best Picture Academy Award in the infamous Envelope Gate incident. Chazelle's latest film, First Man, was released in 2018. Miles Teller went on to star in the Divergent film trilogy, the ill-fated 2015 reboot of The Fantastic Four, and also took leading roles in 2016's War Dogs, starring alongside Jonah Hill, as well as Bleed for This, in which he portrayed former world lightweight boxing champion Vinny Pazienza. At the time of recording, he's currently filming Top Gun Maverick, set to be released in 2020. Since Whiplash, J.K. Simmons has appeared in a variety of roles, including Zootopia for Walt Disney Pictures, the drama Patriot's Day, and has also become the latest actor to portray the part of Commissioner James Gordon in 2017's Justice League, and is set to reprise the role in the upcoming film The Batman. He stars alongside Hugh Jackman in The Front Runner, set for release in early 2019. So that is everything for this bonus episode, Outside Oz number 2, looking at Whiplash. You can go back and listen to the entire first series of Inside Oz by heading on over to iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher Radio, Acast, and all other major podcasting platforms. Help the show out by leaving a 5-star review so that the show can continue to expand. As always, you can get in touch with the show with any questions or comments by emailing insideozpodcast at gmail.com, and you can follow the show on social media at both Instagram and Twitter by following the handle at Inside Oz Podcast. Series 2 of Inside Oz will arrive early in 2019, but all that's left for me to say today is whatever you're getting up to, have a Merry Christmas, take care of yourselves, and I will catch you next time on Inside Oz, the world's only Oz Review Podcast. Catch you later, everybody. So here it is.